This is Maureen Elward. You're listening to Backcast Cape Ann. The stories you hear as part of Backcast Cape Ann's series on the LBGTQ community highlights their contribution, care, and activism. It's a look back at experiences, significant moments, and persistent memories. For this episode in our series on the LBGTQ community, Brian King is my guest. Brian is a singer, songwriter, and performer. He's also the frontman for the neo-cabaret band What Time Is It, Mr. Fox? For 10 years, Brian was the director of PRISM LGBT Health, a public health program in the North Shore, and he currently works as a medical case manager at the North Shore Health Project in Gloucester. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to talk about you as a gay man and a gay man on Cape Ann. You were born here, and so you have a unique insight uh, into the community. So tell me a little bit about when you were younger and your story uh, about just that discovery. Well, I I grew up in Gloucester, was born here. My mom is from Rockport. My dad's from Lanesville. And I have two older brothers. And we grew up, you know, sort of on the border of central Gloucester, East Gloucester. Uh, Went to Veterans Memorial and uh, O'Malley and all of that. When it comes to being gay, I guess I knew that I was different pretty young, and um, I think my first experience of that was the difference being prominent when I went to school, probably even kindergarten, I think. Uh, Definitely by first grade, I had had heard the word fag and gay and pointed at me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew it was something wrong, but it was something that I was. Well, it was wrong to other people, but it certainly wasn't wrong to you, right? Yeah, but that's uh, exactly. But Mm -hmm. at the time, I mean, it's it's what I internalized. What was that like? You know, thinking that you were different and thinking that it was a a a wrong thing because other people were calling you names and bullying Uh, you and. Well, you know, it is awful. (laughs) Um, There's a great. I just want to plug this if if you have Netflix and you can watch uh, Hannah Gatsby's Nanette. It's a comedy, one woman comedy show. Have you seen it? Yes, I've seen it's, that. She covers a lot of that, but and I agree. <laughs> I've watched I do. It with, I do too. <laughs> I've watched it with some uh, uh, gay friends recently, and we cried and were like, "Yes, thank you." So that brought up a lot of you know memories around that, the shame that you uh, internalize because you know. Um, it's one thing to be told that your, you know, behavior is wrong, like, you know, don't, you know, uh, steal or don't um, be mean to this other kid or hit somebody. But then when it's your actual identity, who you are, um, my mother's going to hate that I said this, but uh, one of my earliest memories of, of feeling that shame was I, I love Stevie Nicks and I'm an avid Stevie Nicks fan and everyone knows that. Um, and she was a big influence on my music. And as a kid, I wanted to be her. I just listened to her constantly. And, and I was probably seven years old, and my, my mom thought I was too into her, so took away the, the records. And, um, and it wasn't because I was doing anything wrong. I wasn't being punished for like having bad grades or anything like that. It wasn't, that wasn't the... Uh, uh, the reason it was just because I, I liked her so much. Mm-hmm. And I just, 
I remember feeling like I, you know, this is what feels natural to me. Right, I'm this excited. Is my music. This yeah. is my music. Why is it being taken away? Just because I love it. That kind of it summed it up. I think she thought, oh, he wants to be a girl too much, so we're going to take away this girl music. I don't know if she understood. And you know, I want to give my parents credit that you know, they grew up in a different time, and there wasn't a lot of information. We didn't have gay straight alliances. We didn't. We had doctors telling people like, oh no, you got to fix that. I think she was afraid that it was true. But I know I can't totally speak for her, but that's, mm -hmm. you know. But she was also, I think, trying to protect me um, from uh, further alienation and, mm -hmm. and bullying and all that. But rather than addressing the bullying, it was, why don't we make him change? That would be the easier thing. When you were really coming into your adolescence and saying to yourself, okay, I'm gay, how do I express myself in a way. What was that like for you? Like, what were you doing at that time that was moving you more into becoming yourself and in, in your own authentic way? Well, I think, you know, I learned that there were two different worlds. There was the world I had in my neighborhood, in my backyard, and then there was a the world at school, and they were completely different. Uh, in my backyard, I could kind of be who I wanted with my friends. Um, could enjoy the, you know, we'd play, take on roles and pretend we were different characters. I could be Princess Leia and no one cared. Um, and, but at school it was a completely different story. And the teachers at that time, many of them, um, some who obviously weren't this way, but m many of them also didn't have the tools or, or the understanding. So they would ignore the bullying or they would join in on the bullying. That happened, I had, there was a crossing guard who would join in on the bullying. There was a teacher, unfortunately, that um, recently passed away that a lot of people admired. Uh, and that's one of my most vivid memories is this teacher joining in on the ridicule, um, I think to maybe impress the more athletic kids in the, mm. in the class. But, um, Again, you know, there was no information. There weren't uh, gay straight alliances. There weren't uh, counselors addressing this. This was the norm. I, we had a one teacher that ridiculed a friend of mine in the class, and just you know, he had sort of an effeminate voice, so she kind of said, "Oh, no, no, no," like just mimicked his voice. And and even at that age, I think we were like twelve. I knew like this this, isn't, this shouldn't be happening, um, but. There was no one to tell. <laughs> so I didn't want to go to school. I tried to, I pretended to be sick a lot so I could stay home and and I didn't join in drama. I didn't join in, I wasn't really active in music in school. It was all outside of school where it was safer to do that. So when you were younger, when you, you were in that safe place, what were some people who meant a lot to you or, or um, influential? Uh, pieces of art or literature or, you know, music other than Stevie Nicks. <laughs> yeah. I can't emphasize enough how important I think mentors are, or they were for me. Um, I mean, we are in a different culture and different time. There's a lot more representation in, in music and movies and TV and athletics. But as a kid, um, one of the first people I met was a, a lesbian woman who worked at a local convenience store and I would just hang out there after school and just chat with her and smoke cigarettes and talk about her girlfriend and that was hugely important. The big um, 
important moment was when I met Garrett Lansing, the poet that passed away um, a year ago. He had a bookstore called Abraxas, and I, I went up, uh, just curious, went into the bookstore and bought a, a biography of Jean Cocteau and one of Anais Nin's diaries. And Garrett uh, rang me up and said, oh, I had dinner with Anais once. And my mind just blew apart. I'm like, who is this person? And what are they doing in Gloucester? <laughs> I thought that stuff happens way outside of Gloucester, you know. <laughs> People like that don't live here. Uh, and, he, and he was openly gay, and his partner was still alive at that time and sometimes would be at the bookstore. And Where and was the bookstore? It was, um, oh, I'm trying to remember, it was above what was the rigor, so kind of like above where Jalapenos is now. Yeah, he was the first gay man I met that was really someone I wanted to be like, mm -hmm. um, who had an interesting life, was unapologetic, and seemed happy and totally himself. And that was uh, incredibly important. And then we became friends. And I think that, that my life would have been very different if I didn't meet him and mm -hmm. had that kind of mentor. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, we like the, the gay people to be easy to digest. You know, we like our, we like our gay figures in, in movies and stuff to be, you know, he's sad and we feel bad for him. Um, or he's dying and we feel bad for him. Uh, like Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Which I think are, you know, are important stories to, right. to tell. Um, but at the same time, they're not the only story to tell. Because there's often not many models for gay people growing up or they weren't. Sexuality was kind of figure it out on your own. There's a, gr a great uh, writer, Anadea Judith, I think, who's sort of a spiritual writer. And she wrote something about you know, in a capitalist society, we take away what's natural and then sell it back to you. So there's that, you know, there's that piece where um, someone else owns sex and then they sell it back. And then, therefore, they dictate your culture, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, corporations or religion to dictate what sex is supposed to look like. So then anything that falls outside that norm it's like people are hyper-focused on it because it's taboo. You know, many people have, have, have talked about the, the focus particularly on men because we live in a patriarchy where the focus is often on male power and men who are gay are considered less powerful. You know, it's there are so many cultures where there's, you know, research papers about men defining their masculinity based on not being gay. Like, that is what defines me as masculine, the fact that I'm not gay, that I'm not anything like a woman. Um, it's not that I'm, you know, I'm res respectful or that I work hard or any, <laughs> these aren't what is the fact that I'm not like a woman. And um, it's so pervasive and, and, and harmful for straight men as well as gay men and women, obviously. <laughs> but I really think they're obsessed with it because it's, you know, they, give someone, they feel like someone's giving up power. Me personally, I feel a little bit more gender fluid because I've never been super attached to my gender. I think gender is largely constructed socially. Like, like if you really looked at, look at it and you ask someone, okay, what is being a man outside of biology? Um, or what is being a woman outside of biology? Like what is a, a female trait or a male trait that isn't determined by, you know, um, your DNA. As a kid, I, I really admired women, and they were my role models, and like uh, female singers, actors, uh, writers. There were some men, but for the most part, I just thought, like, these are the cool people. Who, do, who were the yeah. cool people? Well, you know, 
uh, it's so funny because this is the the like the, the question around is there a science to this? Because as a young kid, even though they were before my generation, really, I was into Judy Garland, Sharon, Bette Midler. Like I loved them as a kid and responded to them and saw them on TV went, like, <gasps> just like, that's awesome. And I don't know what it was. Like, I didn't know that they were connected to the gay community, that they had large gay followings. I didn't know any of that. But for some reason, I thought they were pretty cool. Um, so so they were some of the ones I, I originally loved. And then Stevie Nicks. And uh, I think Stevie Nicks was sort of the combination of the Wicked Witch and Dorothy. Um, so she worked for me because I love The Wizard of Oz. So that was <laughs> she's like, she's witchy and she sings and she's pretty. So and she's, that's it. That's yeah. <laughs> she's got it all. She's got it all, right? <laughs> she's she's all. strong, she's vulnerable, and she can, you know, cast spells. But as I grew older, I, you know, realized, like, I didn't, I don't think I wanted to be a woman. I didn't, didn't need to dress like one. I, I wasn't attached to, you know, oh, I need to wear a dress or anything like that. So I just kind of think pu- puberty happened and it just became me. And maybe internalized the feminine and the masculine if those things exist. What is or was your most powerful gay moment? <laughs> um, that's a really good question because I guess uh, every moment is kind of gay uh, because it's. it's it's one part of who I am. It's um, maybe one of the earliest ones was just being among community, and that was with the North Shore Health Project. They had a movie night at um, the Little Art Cinema in Rockport, and it was I think a fundraiser. And I was probably twenty, and they were showing um, this fantastic movie. It's still one of my favorite films, Beautiful Thing, and the place was full of gay men. And they were laughing at all the right moments, and they were um, crying at all the right moments, you know. And we all experienced that film together. And it's a movie about two uh, teenage kids that fall in love. And I had wished it had come out when I was in high school because it would have given me, um, it would have shown me my own story, what I was experiencing. And uh, but it came out, you know, after high school. But still, it's it's so powerful. And that was one of the earliest times I remember being in community. I hadn't gone to a gay pride event yet. I hadn't really, I mean, I had gay friends at that point, but never in such a, like, a big room of people, um, you know. And maybe some years later, going to the Castro Theater in San Francisco and, and seeing a film with, you know, 40 times as many gay men in one place was kind of, was pretty gay. I mean, you can't get gayer than the Castro. Um, I performed at the Stonewall Inn a few times, um, and that was a proud moment because that's where the you know the gay um, civil rights movement began. And so, standing on that stage and and singing, you know, just felt proud to be there and um, invited to perform. For me, also, the being gay or queer and spirituality have always been linked. And I think they were for Garrett, too. How so? Well, there are some theories that when you're not really attached to the gender norms, that binary of male, female, black, white, uh, right, wrong, all these kinds of you know arbitrary uh, labels, um, that 
you're more adaptable, maybe. Uh, and then that this in spirituality, there's a lot more gray, and um, maybe queer people kind of have access to that. I um, I'm really interested in, in ancient Sumer and Inanna, and uh, who's a goddess. Uh, have you read about her? But she's um, there in the old poetry. It's like I mean, it's really the first writing we have. Uh, we know it was written by a woman. The first sacred texts, uh, the first language by humankind. And in those hymns and poems, they talk about men wearing women's clothes to honor Inanna, women wearing men's clothes to honor Inanna. Um, there was already the sort of gender fluidity attached to spirituality, saying, you know, I think they were, I can't, can only speculate, I didn't, you know, I can't go back in time and ask them, what did you mean by that? But there it is in, the, in their, their sacred texts, you know, and I find that fascinating, the connection between you know, gender fluidity and spirituality was is very early <laughs> in mankind. You know, it's not something new. You know, so when people say, "Oh, this all these trans people," like, well, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't new, folks. Well, in in this present moment, what are some of your hopes for gay civil rights and the the progress that um, the gay community has made and marriage equality and what, what are some of your hopes for the future? There's obviously more work to be done. My feeling is that a lot of the issues that we have have to do with just this patriarchal structure of where we have some people's lives are worth more than other people's lives in our societies. Just the fact that we even have that structure, you know, like men are more important than women or white people are more important than people of color. And whether we in our hearts as individuals can say, I don't believe that, the, the structures of our society, the system still supports that, and people are experiencing the consequences of that and the discrimination and, and death from that. And I think more and more people are understanding that LGBTQ rights are a piece of that. But if you have a a society in which we believe that some people are worth more than others, that there's even a value scale in human life. I think nothing nothing can ever change until we just look at that in a big way. And then you can see, oh, we're doing that with these people. We're doing that with people who are disabled. We're doing that with people who are older. We're doing that with people who are diseased. Like, how do we address all of it? Because it's all, um, they're all intersected. Because you have someone who's queer, who's, of color, who's disabled, who has all of these additional stressors on them. And if we don't see it all, it's really it's really hard to kind of just pull out one thing, like, oh, let's just focus on marriage and we'll get that done. And I, I also, I do want to acknowledge the, uh, and, and respect, like, GLAAD, which are based in Boston, because they do the hard work of policy change because I know that to change society, I always say it's like ask a hundred people what movie you want to all see tonight and agree on it. That's how society works, you know, like how do we all agree to move forward as a society? I, I hope that people can just kind of see that, you know, when you reduce other people to uh, a stereotype or you make generalizations about people based on their skin color or their sexuality, it creates war. So as a final question, what is the power of art 
to to tell the gay story. I've done a lot of um, shows where I talk about my story and uh, and did a show a couple years ago called Do You Queer What I Queer with my friend Johnny Blazes, who's um, a non-binary uh, queer performance artist and singer and who's 10 years younger. And we talked about the generational differences or if it's even a generation, 10 years, but how much change has happened. and. And just the process of doing that show was really healing for me and uh, and then sharing that story um, with an audience. And we had a whole bunch of people who, you know, agreed with me or agreed with Johnny or agreed with both of us and, and as we would argue and try to resolve some of these issues. And that was a, a powerful show. I think um, a lot of people talked about being in the audience and happy that these things were discussed in a, in a group setting. Um, that also included, you know, drag and singing and dancing around. And but I think I think storytelling is the most powerful activism. At the end of the day, you know, it's it seems to be that's what moves stuff forward. Someone hears someone they can relate to, and they go, "Oh, I didn't realize that's what was going on. I didn't realize how hard that was. I didn't realize how I contributed to that. I don't want to contribute to that anymore, <laughs> you know. Um, but I want to contribute to the change." So it's been a pleasure to talk with you and get to know you a little bit better. So, Brian King, a local singer, songwriter, artist, activist, keep doing your great work. Thank you. Thanks for doing this and putting all this together. Thanks for being on the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me. Backcast Cape Ann is a production of 1623 Studios. This show was produced by me, Maureen Elward, with technical assistance from Becky Tober. Find Backcast Cape Ann on 1623 Studios' Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all our podcast episodes on 1623studios.org.
Thank you.